Now, defying the president and Democratic Party leaders in an 1838 Senate speech, William Cabell Reeves declared, I can never forget that I have a country to serve as well as a party to obey. I don't think I've heard a speech like that in a while. <laughs> I don't know about you. It's quite a refreshing um, turn of phrase, if you ask me. Well, his career of public service actually began under the tutelage of a couple of well-known neighbors, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And Reeves' um, career also extended beyond the Civil War that he actually struggled to prevent. Reeves was, in addition, the third president of the Virginia Historical Society. His term um, were some pretty significant years, 1847 to 1868, which meant that under his leadership, the collections of the Historical Society were saved from the Great Evacuation Fire of 1865. However, also under his watch, the entire endowment was invested in Confederate bonds. So, <laughs> you might say, for the VHS, Reeves giveth and Reeves taketh away. He was, in addition, a biographer of James Madison and editor of a four-volume edition of Madison's papers. Today's speaker will discuss highlights of the life of this perhaps underappreciated Virginia statesman, historian, and agriculturalist, who also happens to be the speaker's great-grandfather. Barclay Reeves has published articles and stories in Virginia Sportsman, In and Around Horse Country, Albemarle Magazine, and other periodicals. And he's the author of A History of Grace Church and also The Hundred-Year History of the Keswick Hunt Club and also a third book, See You at Second Horses. And of course, the book that he'll be speaking about today, William Cabell Reeves, A Country to Serve. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Barclay Reeves. Thank you, Paul. Thank you all for being here. Um, William Cavill Reeves, he also invested much of his own portfolio in those same Confederate bonds. So uh, the Virginia Historical Society's loss was also his loss. Uh, his uh, society was a much more modest affair than today's Virginia Historical Society in terms of membership and facilities, but there is a nice con connection. In 1853, William Cavill Reeves came back from Paris with and brought a portrait of Benjamin Franklin that now hangs in Paul Levengood's office, which we credit William Cavill Reeves for having great foresight to make Paul feel at home because Paul was born and raised in Philadelphia. So. <laughs> William Calvary's was remarkable in many respects. This part of William Calvary's uh, image that uh, is on the cover of my book is from an 1839 lithograph by a Swiss-born art artist named Charles Fenderick. And so copies of this print were circulated around the country. There's beneath the image, it has those words. I can never forget that I have a country to serve, as 
well as a party to obey. When I was a child, there was a copy of this print hanging in my bedroom, and so this was the first thing that I would see when I would open my eyes. <laughs> and I would wonder, well, who was he talking to? What he, was he talking about? So this book really began when I was a child as a quest to uh, try to find out these answers. William Cavill Reeves has been somewhat, I feel, neglected by historians, except the Virginia Historical Society remembers him very well. If you look at my bibliography, there are a lot of articles that up, uh, appear that mention William Cavill Reeves and that were essential source material for me. The, uh, this is a roadside marker that is on Route 29, just south of Lovingston. And it says that Reeves was born at Oak Ridge. Actually, he was born at his grandfather, William Cavill's home, Union Hill, which is a few miles east and overlooking the James River. Otherwise, this does a pretty good job of summar summarizing the highlights of his career. And as for the mistake about Oak Ridge Union Hill, uh, I was just telling a fellow author just a few uh, minutes ago that uh, my own book has more mistakes in it than uh, this sign has. It's, it's uh, unfortunately a, uh, an occupational hazard. William Cavill Reeves, he was a member of the Virginia militia during the War of 1812. He served as aide-de-camp to General John Hartwell Cock. He, uh, the, the, besides the uh, things mentioned in uh, this sign, his service in the Virginia General Assembly, in the U.S. House of Representatives, the United States Senate, the uh, he was twice minister to France. He served as a ardent unionist at delegate to the 1861 peace conference in Washington, uh, D.C. And he, uh, after the war, he was a trustee of the Peabody Education Fund, which sought to promote reconciliation. Reeves was also a very ardent, like his neighbors Madison and Jefferson, he was an ardent agriculturalist. If any of you know of sports uh, historian Alexander McKay Smith, whom I spoke to about Reeves, McKay Smith said Reeves, he was much, his contributions as an agriculturalist were even greater than his contributions as a statesman. Reeves, he made an extensive study of breeds of horses in England and France, and McKay Smith said, this is as good as anything any expert did at the time, and the horses were not only the foundation of the economy and agriculture, but they were also of Im immense importance uh, militarily. Uh, Reeves imported a Cleveland Bay stallion, and McKay 
Smith was prejudiced. He also was a Cleveland Bay uh, uh, promoter. Uh, William Cavill Reeves, he attended Hampton, Sydney. There's some Hampton, Sydney alums in the audience. Uh, and he uh, also, he uh, following his year at Hampton, Sydney, he attended William and Mary. And while he was at William and Mary, he became involved in a dispute with another student that it uh, didn't lead to a duel, but according to William Cavill Reeves' recollections as late in life, he said it was the intervention of some of his fellow students that prevented it from becoming a duel. So the head of William and Mary at the time was Bishop James Madison, who was a cousin of President Madison. Bishop James Madison was an old friend of Thomas Jefferson. He had the two of them attended Maury's school together. And Bishop Madison told Reeves, he said, you need to withdraw from college and take a couple years off. But I have a friend that lives in central Virginia that he is interested in teaching promising young men. And that man was Thomas Jefferson in 1809 freshly uh, uh, retired from the presidency and from public life. So William Cavill Reeves studied with Jefferson for two years. William Cavill Reeves, his recollection of as a young man being taught by Thomas Jefferson, what was that like? Intimidating. He said not because Jefferson was stern or was trying to show him up, uh, show his ignorance, or, or uh, show that he, he hadn't thoroughly read the assignments. He said Jefferson's intellect was so forthful, forceful, so brilliant, so pungent. There was no keeping up with him. And Reeves said that Jefferson, in his manner, personally, he had the serene, abstract air of a philosopher. And that image, in my mind, it just conjures that Jefferson was multitasking. I mean, has this na nation ever seen such a brain that at this time, Jefferson is he's dreaming up the University of Virginia. He's uh, designing uh, uh, homes and, and buildings. So uh, uh, Reeves, he also blamed in his second year under Jefferson Jefferson assigned these English law tomes, including something called Cook on Littleton. Uh, and Cook, a legal historian, uh, schooled me on the pronunciation. It's spelled C-O-K-E, but it's pronounced Cook. This was a treatise on property law, and Reeves blamed this for making him a slow reader for the rest of his life. <laughs> because he said this was so dense and so difficult to plow through. And Jefferson insisted, before you move on to any other reading, you must understand this work in all of its black letter abstruseness. Reeves said that, that afterwards he could never read for fun. He, 
He said that he did, when he read something, he read it carefully and retained it. But he said that his colleagues in Congress were much more extensively read than he was because when he, he just couldn't read fast. Reeves, he became a, uh, a good friend of James Madison a little later in his career. He met Madison in, in January of 1819. And Madison, now Jefferson and Madison scholars, they debate this, and so I'm going to oversimplify this, and if any of you them are in the room, they'll crucify me afterwards, but Madison, uh, simplifying, uh, believed in, in a stronger central government than Jefferson, and so Madison, Reeves started out er early in his career as very much uh, states' rights and let's not let the federal government be responsible for ever, anything. And Madison brought him along to a, a more fuller appreciation of the Constitution. The problem with Reeves being so well acquainted in his youth with Jefferson and Madison was that he was forever comparing the presidents who came after to Jefferson and Madison, and he was always finding them wanting, which anyone would have. There have never uh, been the like of that uh, Framer generation. In 1819, uh, he had just met uh, uh, Madison, but the event that Reeves said uh, was responsible for his happiness in life uh, occurred. And that was he, the occasion of his marriage to Judith Page Walker. And uh, she uh, was a, she is worthy of a biography of her own. This is a brilliant woman. She uh, uh, published novels, she published uh, works of nonfiction, she would resent being called a feminist because she didn't believe in breaking down barriers. But within the constraints of her time and era, she accomplished a great deal. She was of tremendous support to her husband. She is responsible for the building of Grace Church in her neighborhood. She engaged the architect and managed the fundraising. Uh, she, uh, her, her books do not have her name on them as author because that would be, would have been unseemly according to the custom of the day. So the, the books are listed by a lady of Virginia. Uh, the way that William Cavill Reeves proposed her, actually he proposed her once and she turned him down, uh, but later they, uh, uh were guests at Farmington, now Farmington Country Club, but then an estate that was the home of her aunt, Martha Divers. And she and William Cavill Reeves happened to find themselves, I think this was Martha Divers scheme, scheming house guests at the same time, and they read an Italian romance, a medieval work, and in the, this, the way that the knights would 
propose marriage to their ladies fair, they would offer first a rosebud and then a half open rose. And if the lady took that, them, that was a sign of encouragement. And if she accepted from the knight's hand a full-blown rose, the two were considered engaged. And so William Cavill Reeves reenacted this and he, uh, the, this is how he proposed. In uh, the family tradition, uh, my own happiness is due to uh, my marriage. My proposal, uh, you can ask Aggie for details, was less elegant. Uh, this is a, a portrait, a uh, matching portrait. These uh, images are lent to me through the kindness of the University of Virginia. They presently hang in the president's house at Cars Hill. Uh, uh, Reeves, he looks a little swarthy in this uh, 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 portrait. In fact, his hair was of a sort of a dark chestnut color, you would call it. It's about the color of a dark chestnut horse. And I know because I have seen his hair, one of the uh, pleasures or perils, uh, however you look at it, of research is you never know what's going to come out of the box and the files in, in the University of Virginia special collection. Sure enough, there was an envelope in, in Judith's writing saying, Mr. Reeves' hair, June 1842. I opened this up and there was something a little gruesome uh, about it, but I very excitedly said to the people who run the Special Collections Library, look, you've got to come see this. And they said, eh, we got a lot of hair from that era. We've got, uh, we got lots of Jefferson's hair. Uh, Reeves, he served in the Virginia General Assembly. He uh, served in the uh, House of uh, Representatives. Back to uh, Judith, this was a lady with very strong uh, opinions. Uh, she, in uh, 1861, was penning an autobiography, and she talked about her husband's rise in political life, she said, well, in those days of our republic, there was an acknowledged class that was destined to rule. And she said, because my husband, because he was property, because he was well-educated, it, it was natural that he would become a leader. She said, in those days, a rail splitter would have been deemed a useful citizen, but not presidential material. <laughs> Wonder who she was talking about. And, and then she, at one point in her life, she was a friend of James Fenimore Cooper of Washington Irving, and she was very thrilled to be introduced to Charles Dickens when he was during his American tour. And she said, well, Dickens, I, I love his writing. She said, his Features are rather coarse. I would consider him underbred, <laughs> as if she would uh, was uh, qualified to judge. Reeves, he 
was sent to be minister to France during Andrew Jackson's first term. And his assignment was to uh, uh, collect uh, the French signatures and, and to get the French to agree to a reparations treaty for damages that had been inflicted upon American shipping during the Napoleonic Wars. And so Reeves' predecessors as minister to France, they had been trying to get this done and been unsuccessful. In 1830, Reeves witnessed the, the four uh, glorious days of the July Revolution. And Charles X, who had been a younger brother of the guillotined Louis XVI, Charles X was thrown out by the French. And in his place, uh, they installed Louis Philippe, whom we see here. And the, this portrait is sort of uh, unusual in images of Louis Philippe because this shows Louis Philippe at the dawn of his reign. He's in, he's holding the tricolor and he is uh, uh, supposedly on the barricades, which he probably was not, uh, in 1830. And the, the tricolor is the revolutionary flag. The uh, fleur de lis is being thrown out. So uh, if you've seen Les Miserables, that's a couple of years into Louis Philippe's reign and they're throwing up barricades and they're tired of Louis Philippe. Louis Philippe owed his ascendance to the throne to Lafayette who, when the smoke cleared uh, from the revolution and, and Charles X had fled, Lafayette conferred with the American minister. And Lafayette and Reeves had met in 1824 when Lafayette came to Monticello to visit Jefferson. Reeves had given a welcoming speech to Lafayette. But Lafayette said to Reeves, the system of government I admire most in the world is the, the United States Constitution. But I don't think the French are ready for a republic. Will the Americans forgive me if I install Louis Philippe as the French king? And Reeves said, just don't worry about uh, American public uh, opinion. You do what is practical for yourself. And Lafayette said, well, maybe we'll have an elected assembly to advise him. And Reeves said, well, that, that sounds great. In fact, Reeves and Lafayette were pilloried in the American press. And a historian said, well, Reeves might have, been, might have told Lafayette what he wanted to hear. But would Thomas Jefferson had given uh, or Benjamin Franklin or James Monroe, his predecessors in, in the position have given this same answer. So uh, the uh, uh, coronation of Louis Philippe 
Reeves and his wife were uh, on the platform and they uh, had, as their friend and guest was there, was uh, Washington Irving, who was also a diplomat as well as an author. But someone sitting on the stage, they were looking at the king approaching and the, an English officer said, if this king has any sense at all, he will take those two men. And he pointed to Lafayette and T Prince Talleyrand, who were also on the stage. He said he, he'll bound them in chains and throw them into the Seine because as long as Talleyrand and Lafayette are alive, the, no one is safe because Talleyrand has sworn eternal legion, allegiance to at least eight successive French governments and Lafayette is a revolution unto himself. Uh, this is Louis-Philippe's Queen Amélie, and uh, Amélie, uh, uh, Judith uh, Reeves got to be a, a very close friend of Amélie's, and evidently when the Reeves left France, uh, Amélie abandoned protocol and, and uh, clung uh, and, and embraced Judith, and uh, th this was so beautiful. Uh, uh, Judith and uh, uh, William Cavill Reeves, they had two, they had five children total, but two of their children were born in Paris during his ministry. A son, Alfred, and a daughter who was named Emily. The Reeves' uh, daughter, Emily, she uh, uh, was she married a, a Bostonian, uh, and, but Alfred, the son, he named his daughter Emily. So William Cavill Reeves and Judith Page Reeves had a granddaughter who was Emily, who became a scandalous and best-selling auth authoress of the Gilded Age. I, I hope uh, there's some of you who have read Donna Lucy's book called. Archie and Amelie, Love and Madness in the Gilded Age. But the name Amelie and, and the granddaughter Amelie, she possessed some of this family attitude that I was talking about with Judith. She remarked later in life, she said, well, the Reeves are very particular about whom they choose as godparents. She said, my own godfather was General Robert E. Lee. My father's godfather was Lafayette. And my aunt and namesake had for a godmother the Queen of France. This is Thomas Walker Gilmer. He was a governor of Virginia, and he was uh, secretary of the Navy. Thomas Walker Gilmer and he, he was, his, his, Gilmer's father was a first cousin of Judith Page Reeves. He was a few yo years younger than William Cavill Reeves and Reeves mentored uh, Gilmer at one point in their correspondence. Gilmer is saying, I'm not sure my 
political prospects in Virginia are great. I'm thinking of moving to the Western territories. And William Cavill Reeves says, no, you must, your roots are in Virginia and you must stay in Virginia. <coughs> Gilmer, he was in the uh, General Assembly and he helped get uh, William Cavill Reeves uh, elected to the Senate. And as we know, until the early 20th century, the state legislatures chose senators. Well, uh, shortly after Reeves uh, arrived from Paris, he took up his seat in the U.S. Senate. And this is in the spring of 1833, and there is great turmoil in the United States over the issue of tariffs, and specifically the state of South Carolina is saying, we are not going to pay tariffs, and they assert the doctrine of nullification, that if a state considers a federal law unconstitutional, we are not bound to obey it, and they are basing some of their words on uh, the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions of 18, uh, 1799 and 1800, authored by Jefferson and Madison. So there's a great deal of turmoil. And so J Andrew Jackson, he is pushing for a force bill saying if, well, he issues a proclamation saying nullification is treason. And then in privately, he says, the leader of this South Carolina faction, John C. Calhoun, my former vice president, should be hanged. And he's, his force bill, he's saying, if South Carolina won't collect this tariff, I'm sending the military and they will uh, collect the, the tariff. So there's a division in Virginia. Some are supporting Jackson and some are supporting the nullifiers and the South Carolinians. And where is, is Reeves going to uh, come down on this? Reeves stands up in the Senate and he comes down on Jackson's side. He says if nullification is left to stand, the, uh, this will inflict a mortal wound on the Constitution. And he uh, says that uh, uh, we, the, he, he talks about where the power uh, in the government is vested. And so he makes a lot of enemies in this speech. James Madison writes Reeves a letter and says, you have perfectly expressed my concept of what government under the Constitution is about. But Thomas Walker Gilmer is uh, less pleased. He writes... Uh, uh, newspaper articles condemning Reeves, uh, vilifying Madison, and their argument reaches an unpleasant climax in July of 1833 in Charlottesville's Court Square. And Gilmer inflicts on Reeves the Lieutenant Randolph outrage. The Lieutenant Randolph outrage was named 
for a naval officer whom Andrew Jackson had gotten fired from the Navy. And Randolph bided his time and then at a reception where Jackson was appearing, he walked up to ja Jackson, he was taking off his gloves and Jackson thought he was going to shake his hand, but instead he reached out and tweaked Jackson on the nose. According to the code of honor of that time, that was an offense against Jackson's honor. And so if we were back in 1830 and I went down and, and grabbed the nose of some gentleman on the front row, by the code of that day, they would be uh, justified in killing me. Uh, and challenge, challenging me to a duel to the death. So Gilmer uh, inflicted the, and, and after Randolph had tweaked Jackson's nose, Jackson took a swing at Randolph with his cane and missed. And so Jackson was president. And it just, he thought, well, I, as president, I can't challenge somebody to a duel. But some of Jackson's advisors said, well, do you want us to go uh, uh, take care of this guy? And Jackson said that would be dishonorable. So Jackson, to save his honor, he said, he didn't touch me. He, no, no, it looked like he got my nose, but he, he missed. <laughs> but Gilmer got uh, William Cavill Reeves' nose. And uh, the uh, Reeves and Gilmer they, they threw punches at each other. Reeves, uh, uh, he walked away from the incident with a black eye. Uh, there were uh, accounts of the event in the Richmond Examiner. All about the honor rested on who had hit first and was Reeves sitting down when Gilmer uh, it, it had uh, struck him and, and inflicted the Lieutenant Randolph outrage. And so when people say, oh, politics have reached this ugly uh, head nowadays, people have never been as polarized as they are now in this country. Well, it just ain't true. Uh, Thomas Walker Gilmer, he met an unfortunate end. He was Secretary of the Navy and he perished uh, on the explosion of the, on the USS Princeton, which uh, uh, I'm running out of time, can't go into that story, but uh, President Tyler and uh, the Reeves were also on deck. And at that point, uh, Reeves and Gilmer had, had reconciled. Uh, political cartoons, I think, show people's status and, and perception, or at least we, we look at uh, these things at this time, and this is the Whig version of the election of 1840. You see the sale is uh, the initials OK, and that, that stands for Old Kinderhook, who uh, that was a nickname of uh, Martin Van Buren. And Martin Van Buren, so it's his ship is going down. In the water are John C. Calhoun and, and some members of uh, 
Van Buren's cabinet. In the sky, we see William Cavill Reeves and William Henry Harrison in the center, and then Senator Nathaniel Talmadge of New York. Harrison was the president who uh, was the candidate who defeated uh, Van Buren in the election. Uh, Reeves and Talmadge had defected from the Democratic Party on the uh, uh, basis of Van Buren's proposal to create an independent treasury. And Reeves and Talmadge and these uh, conservative Democrats felt that this was an expansion of presidential power. And this was the setting in which Reeves gave his speech of, I uh, cannot uh, forget that I have a country to serve as well as a party to obey. Van Buren was trying to insist, and his henchmen were saying, what's good for the Democratic-Republican Party is good for the country, and so follow the party line, obey orders. And Reeves said, I, I cannot put party before country. So uh, Van Buren was a one-term president. Reeves, in the, in the fight, he he had no chance of uh, rising to a cabinet position and this sort of also damaged him politically as well. We're going to jump forward to uh, February 1861 and this is the setting of the peace uh, convention at the Willard Hotel, which was the last major attempt at uh, finding a negotiated uh, solution and uh, uh, avoiding civil war. Reeves was one of five Virginia delegates to this convention. Uh, if anybody is heading to Washington, D.C. tonight, the, an author is in the uh, audience today who has just come out with a new book on the uh, peace convention. So if you're in the neighborhood of the Willard Hotel uh, to, uh, tonight, uh, come to his book sign. Oh, he's nodding his head. Uh, uh, so in uh, February of 1861, seven states had already succeeded, seceded. And uh, yet uh, Reeves, and in, from our perspective, and many books don't even mention the peace conference. From our perspective, it seems inevitable. The country is sliding into war. But in the contemporary eyes, in, in reading the correspondence, Reeves thought that this was the country's uh, hope and people in the North and South, who for their various reasons did not want the peace conference to fail, who wanted a separation and, uh, or wanted war, they were afraid that the peace conference would succeed. The peace conference, its uh, eventual proposals were 
a, an extension of the Missouri Compromise line so that uh, north of that certain latitude uh, th there would be no slavery, but slavery uh, allowed uh, below that latitude. There was also a uh, supermajority clause that Reeves thought was very useful that uh, at the time, no one thought that the United States borders were settled and it seemed that maybe the North was going to acquire some parts of Canada. I don't know if anybody had envisioned Alaska, but uh, in John uh, Cavill Breckenridge, plat part of his platform was a, an acquiring of Cuba as an additional uh, slave state, but Reeves said new territory can only be acquired with the consent of a uh, super uh, majority. Uh, in, uh, shortly before the peace conference, uh, or, or a, shortly after the peace conference adjourned, uh, Reeves met with Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln, when they first met, said, well, Mr. Reeves, so great is your reputation. I, I'm surprised that you're not a taller man. And Reeves was about my size, about 5'8", and uh, Lincoln was six foot four. And Reeves said, huh, I feel a very small man in your presence. So Reeves was, he wrote his son, he said, this, this guy does not impress me. He does not uh, realize the, the gravity of the situation. Uh, unfortunately, the recommendations of the peace conference were not accepted and they, uh, w w w and it failed. Reeves, in his speech, he said, well, in the re 1830 revolution in Paris, I saw men lay down their arms and, and would not fire uh, upon their brothers and I cannot believe that as a Christian nation that we will kill each other. And so he underestimated the, I guess historians say now it's about three quarters of a million deaths that he, uh, 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 his figures were a little off. Um, uh, Reeves, he, he went on to serve in the Confederate Congress. He was a unionist even after Lincoln's call for troops, he, wrote the governor, he said, let's just ignore this call for troops. He, he uh, said, maybe we can get the U European powers to intervene. And it was only after Virginia voted to secede that he said, well, there's, uh, this is uh, no longer government by the consent of the govern governed. There's an invasion and I, I must stand with my state. In 1867, here is Reeves. He's seated at the far right. Uh, he was named a trustee of the Peabody Education Fund. Uh, the person seated at the far left is uh, New England uh, a, a, a philanthropist named George Peabody. On either side of Peabody are Admiral Farragut. Then the uh, bearded man above Peabody is Hamilton Fish, who was Secretary of State during Grant's administration. There's Grant. 
Uh, the Charles uh, Karl Marx bearded fellow looks is um, Governor Aiken of South Carolina. The uh, fellow with a, his hand in his breast uh, pocket is uh, former Speaker of the House Robert Charles Winthrop. Uh, uh, Vane and Wetmore, the other two people I don't know as much about. I love this picture because it's a, a picture of the re reconciliation that Reeves was trying to promote. And Reeves, he wrote a letter of, he, he, Reeves had just published an, a, another volume of his history of James Madison in his times. And a publication gave him a good review, but then said, this in 1867, our constitution has been killed. It's, it's just dead. And Reeves said, no, it's not. The Constitution will live and flourish. But if it has been killed, it is the fault of the southern states who seceded and, and took the measures they took instead of, of uh, abiding by the Constitution. So uh, Reeves, one of his obituaries said, Surely, uh, William Cavill Reeves was the most accomplished Virginian man that Virginia has produced after Thomas Jefferson. Well, he wasn't that great. <laughs> and, but, uh, but he deserves a little bit more of, uh, attention than he has gotten. But uh, he, he himself would not be as uh, upset of, that his name has faded into semi obscurity, he would be delighted that the Constitution still lives. Uh, thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. And I guess question and answer. I guess you, you wait for a microphone to be brought to you. Remarkable fellow. Uh, you've got to be pleased with him. What was, uh, what was Mr. Reeves' position on the Compromise of 1850 and the expansion of slavery into the territories and slavery generally? Uh, very interesting question. The Compromise of 1850, he actually, he was in France during that, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act that, that followed, he had just gotten back from Paris. Reeves, his solutions were not as creative as the times demanded, were essentially, can't we all get along? Uh, but Reeves, in one of his pieces, he quoted an 1819 letter of Madison to Robert Walsh. And this is problematic for Madison devotees. Madison was saying that the Missouri Compromise line that that was illegal because Madison said going back to the admission of the states uh, into the Union under the Constitution that there was discussion at the Constitutional Convention should the original states have greater privileges and greater powers than any uh, admitted subsequently. And the decision was no. So Madison looking at it in a hyper-legalistic analytical sense said, slavery is a privilege 
that should not be denied new states. So that the, uh, the it, so Reeves was supporting the Kansas-Nebraska Act that had thrown out that line. So Reeves saw the possibility of the Civil War coming in his speech in 1833 about the tariffs. And he, he, he saw the, the uh, rending of the national fabric with with great dismay. I don't know if that's a good answer, but yes. I assume then that he was a slave owner, and the other part de dealing is was he buried at Grace Church at Keswick, and then jumping over to Gilmer, is his association with the University of Virginia because there is a building named Gilmer Hall, which is the biology building there. But I didn't hear you say anything that he had an association sa with. It. Same family, and this being Virginia, the, 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 they're, they're, they're related. Uh, William Cavill Reeves, he, he was a, a, a slave owner. He is buried at Castle Hill, his uh, home, which is northeast of Charlottesville. Reeves had land in Nelson County that uh, his father had, had given him. In 1859 and 1860, he was selling his properties in Nelson County and also uh, selling some of his slaves in Nelson County. He invested and that, he had been in debt for most of his life and debts, we know about Jefferson's debts, but debt seems to be a fairly commonplace uh, uh, thing uh, among slaveholders, and I think it's because there's always the possibility that you, you can sell uh, slaves. Uh, Reeves and uh, his wife considered themselves uh, benign uh, uh, slave owners. The book I most recommend is a book called Weevils in the Wheat that is an interview with, interviews with former slaves. This was part of the uh, New Deal that uh, Roosevelt gave uh, 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 writers uh, 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 assignment to go out and find former slaves. Uh, they, it's Weevils in the Wheat edited by Charles Perdue and think that you read it, you realize that benign slave ownership, that is a contradiction in terms. Mr. Reeves, great talk. My okay. question is, in those days when you studied under the great man like Madison, was there any type of purse or any funds you had to pay Jefferson? Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. Jefferson, Jefferson did this for the the love of it, and Jefferson, um, he, you know, if you've been to Monticello, you see that there's that copying machine, and I think that Jefferson, that he had a file, I mean, he had it all in his mind as well, but that Jefferson said, okay, here's another promising student, let me get uh, one of these letters to a, a future political leader out and and so their letters to minor and 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 his his grandson uh, all very similar to the things that he he wrote Reeves which which I quote in my book I, 
that uh, cartoon, uh, political cartoon of, of the uh, of Van Buren. I w Jackson had, if I remember correctly, uh, Jackson had uh, recently uh, uh, eliminated the Bank of the United States. And I wondered if uh, this was an attempt of some kind to reestablish it. What, what was the, uh, what was the, do you have any more information about the establishment of a, what, a separate treasury well, that would not be a part of the government? Well, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, they're talking about r replacing Hamilton's image on the $10 bill. I, I'm with the people who have said, what's Jackson doing on the $20 bill? <laughs> he, he, he was not nice to Indians. Jackson despised paper money. Jackson also, his financial policies threw the country into a long financial panic and depression. Jackson, uh, he decided that the bank, because there were private shareholders that profited from the bank, this just w was an elitist condition that ja ja Jackson opposed. Reeves, late in Jackson's term, along with a Senator uh, Ewing and, and some others, and, and actually Congress voted to uh, revoke the specie circular, which it, Jackson had, had said only gold and silver, uh, with no paper money at all, and it, it was all of a sudden realized this had thrown the economy into a terrible contraction. So Van Buren was finally able to push that sub-treasury, independent treasury bill through. Then uh, uh, when Tyler, uh, Harrison and then Tyler succeeded Van Buren, they vetoed the sub-treasury, but then great debates, Reeves faced off against Henry Clay over what would replace the uh, I independent treasury that they had can canceled. It was uh, 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 under uh, James Polk, who came along, and Reeves had opposed Polk, but they, uh, uh, he established, uh, he brought back that in independent treasury. And really, the Civil War is what uh, brought about the, the free and confident use of paper money. And then the Federal Reserve System and economic, economics was my worst subject in, in college, so I'm already way over my head. But that's the best I can do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about the process you used for identifying and collecting and organizing the source materials that you cite in your book? Because it's really pretty impressive. Oh, th uh, thank you very much. Um, many years, um, I, I tried to um, maximize my uh, time spent at the Library of Congress, which has the, the over 50,000 items. Early in my research, I uh, visited a dear cousin whom I'm looking at in the audience and her mother, and we spent the morning together, and then I came here in the afternoon, and this would have been in, in the early 90s, and I came here and did some research, 
And at the door, they said, well, do you want to become a member? And, <laughs> and I said, oh, why not? And uh, my membership in the Virginia Historical Society was crucial because uh, in the magazine or, or some of the articles, particularly, I didn't get into it, but the, uh, how William Cavill Reeves uh, was able to get Congress to purchase dollies, uh, uh, purchase J Madison's papers from uh, uh, Dolly after Madison had, had died. I spent years going to the University of Virginia collection. Had an organization is not my long suit, uh, but uh, I collected all the material and then there were some days when my wife and children were not at home when I would spread out lots of documents on rugs and, and really easily the, the space of this stage and say, okay, this goes here, this goes there, this, this goes. And I, I could have uh, uh, done a better job organizing. I could have done years more research. I was happy to get the book out and to hold it in my hand because William Cavill Reeves has been the graveyard of would-be biographers. Uh, because in, in my research, I would see, uh, a, you know, say something from the 1950s. This, an article about William Cavill Reeves, and this person is going to write a biography of William Cavill Reeves. So anyway, uh, I, I I hope that answers your question. That you all have been a wonderful audience. Thank you. One second, one second before you leave. Never let it be said that I do not admit mistakes. Is Bob Pretty still here? Bob mentioned a talk tonight, and that threw me. We do actually have a class tonight on uh, German saboteurs during World War I, which will be here at 5.30 in the evening. So, Bob, there is still space in the class. It's available up at the desk. So I apologize, Bob, that I... Missed that for a second, but thank you for coming and thank you to Barkley Reeves very, very much. Thank you.